Welcome back, everyone. This is Opinions My Own, your favorite AML podcast with me, Zila Acosta-Grimes, and my colleague, Paul Caulfield. Um, today, you are in for a real treat. We have Dom Palmieri. He is a gems and jewelry forensic expert, appraiser, publisher, consultant. Um, he is the president and founder of Gem Certification and Assurance Lab, Inc., or GCAL, which is the only diamond and gemstone ISO 17025 accredited forensic laboratory in the world. Uh, we talk about that in today's podcast and what that means and why that's so incredible. Um, he's also the chairman of Gemprint Corporation. Um, you can look him up on LinkedIn. His CV is beyond impressive. And he gives us a real insider scoop into what the jewels and gems and how they can be used for AML. Um, it's, it's honestly a really fascinating conversation. Um, and he has a 50 year career to kind of walk us through. So he has all types of examples. It was a really fascinating conversation. What was great is that it's not just AML. And we talked a little bit about some of the laws and regulations that financial services firms face and that the uh, diamonds and jewels industry should be facing and, and complying with, but also the technology. I, I really found the discussion on Gemprint, the, the technology that they use to uh, track and imprint within uh, certain uh, jewels. Very, very interesting. Don's a Vietnam veteran. Uh, he does start us off in his early part of his career. It is amazing to see how he progressed, how he got to where he is now for the general practitioner of AML, this is right down the pike for you. For the consumer of diamonds and jewels, we all are. I think you'll find this fascinating on some ideas on how we can continue to protect ourselves and buyer beware when you're, uh, in fact, purchasing diamonds and jewels. And then for law enforcement, as I said before, I, I do hope that law enforcement and regulators do listen to this podcast. I think it's eye-opening for, for them. I think it's eye-opening for us. It's one of our longer forms, so we do appreciate that you uh, continue to support us, continue to uh, send us topics. We are at, on Twitter, opine underscore mine, we're streaming, and we are also on YouTube at Opinions My Own. So please enjoy this episode, and thank you, uh, Ava Lichter, for your uh, continued production assistance, and uh, you, the listener, for your continued support. Enjoy. First off, um, Zila, you know, it's great to see you. Uh, as the listeners know, uh, you were out. You're still on maternity leave. Congratulations on your baby boy. Um, I know you have him, you know, right there with you. So I'm glad that if you he's- you hear in... little squeaking noises, know that it's all small child. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I'm glad we've got a, a third host to this. But Don, very much appreciate you spending this time with us. As I look at your CV, and this is like one of those things, do you call it a resume or CV? I, I actually think this is a curriculum vitae, if there ever is one. When, I, in, when, I'm, in, when I'm in the tech space, they call really, really uh, uh, expert coders ninjas. I look at your CV, and I don't even think of the word expert. I think of the word master gemologist, because it's just replete with experience over, the, over, over decades. And so for the listener and us, before we get into some cases and we talk about the anti-money laundering and your experience, give us a little bit, how'd you get here? I mean, I've, I don't know the diamonds and jewels space well at all, but I know 
industry and sectors. And I see your CV and your background, and it's just staggering. And I'm so excited to get involved in the subject matter. But before we get to it, can you give us a little bit of your background and how you became so embedded and so fluent in this space? Well, we don't have enough time uh, to actually. <laughs> well, that's, we might. I'm, you know, obviously I'm old, so I've survived uh, many decades in this industry. And it's really a matter of um, uh, reinventing yourself almost uh, every decade, uh, especially in, in this business. Uh, I've done so many different things because I've done them out of curiosity and I've done them because I enjoy, I have a passion for the gemstone industry. Um, my family background, uh, both of my uh, parents were more on the intellectual side with master's degrees, one in social work, one in uh, library science, English and French. And uh, all of the children, except for one, uh, became businessmen. And that one became a teacher, and that was my sister. So uh, I, would, I would just have to say that um, very quickly, I was recruited. I didn't even know that I had any knack for design or uh, anything like that. I, I, I took a course in high school. It was called Craft Shop for a few years. And I actually enjoyed making things, working with things, worked in wood, worked in metals. But I made a piece of jewelry because it was a requirement. And the teacher was so taken by it, he remembered it at the, toward the end of the year when there was an industrial arts fair, and this was in Pittsburgh. And um, two people, myself and one other gentleman from my class, same craft shop class, um, who entered the jewelry piece that we made, we both won, um, for, he won first prize for execution, I won third prize for design. But one of the judges was the largest manufacturer in Pittsburgh, jewelry manufacturer. And he contacted the teacher and said, I would really like to offer these two young men uh, an internship um, to come and, uh, and work in the jewelry industry. Well, of course, my age being, I graduated from high school in 1965. I had two older brothers, one a year older, one two years older, make long story short, they were only giving one deferment uh, per family. Uh, and my oldest brother was in college. And so my next oldest brother and I knew we didn't have a chance. We were both going to get drafted, probably both end up in Vietnam. He was smart. He joined the Air Force and uh, never set foot in Vietnam. I joined the Army um, as, a, as an MP, thinking that I would be stateside just chasing draft dodgers which is a, sounds now like a cowardly thing to do, um, but I ended up in Vietnam. So at any rate, I, I found out two things. One is that I, I did go to work for the manufacturer and I had a penchant for design. He sent me to school in New York. It was a brief uh, school, but it was Gemological Institute of America. And they had a very intense one week design course. And he thought that would put some professionalism uh, in my in the work that I was already doing for the company. And so that was for about a year and a half. Then I got drafted, then I ended up as a military policeman. And then I found out I love to investigate. So long story to really put the two together. I found out I had a passion for gems and jewelry and design and a passion for investigation 
investigation. And so that's how I, and I have to tell you that maybe that was like the nucleus for, uh, for what has come since then with my seeking out uh, ed education and training uh, in both investigations. And it, and it sounds, I mean, it, it came out that without any real formal training, um, I became an expert witness in the jewelry industry because um, of my, I, I would have to say my family background who, you know, we didn't, we didn't learn how to uh, put a sharp edge on a business deals or, you know, it was all pretty much the golden rule and you did things the right way and you were honest and legitimate. And so bottom line, fusing those two things together um, and uh, years and years, decades really of continuing. You can see from my CV that I've taken courses and classes on and on and on. Um, and then I began teaching as well back in the 80s. So uh, it's, it's a passion. It, uh, it's a love and a passion. And um, as you can tell, I could probably go on for four or five hours talking about uh, my various passions, but it, I've really been very, very fortunate. And I've had some people who have taken an interest in me at a younger age and kind of helped pro propel my uh, career. We think everyone who becomes successful in anything, no matter how good, no matter how smart you are, you always can look back at the people who made critical uh, differences in your life in your profession. And uh, I mean, I could go on naming those people all the way back to my craft shop teacher in well, high school. Well, I could, and I could, uh, you know, reverse it because you picked up the phone when I called you in 2004, when I had a, uh, a diamond theft case, when I first came to know you, um, I think there were back then, it was a, a few diamonds that had been uh, stolen. Um, they had been at some point reshaped and I knew nothing another uh, uh, prosecutor was nice enough to introduce me to you. And, and that's how I came to know you. And so as I've, as I've mentioned, outside of these episodes, within the episodes, if I were to ever launder money, I, I wouldn't be doing it within the financial uh, services space. I'd be uh, walking down to 47th Street. I mean, no offense. And I think that that's one area within the diamond district, within diamonds and jewels globally, if someone wanted to, that's a much better space to do. It. And that's why I kind of wanted to have you on. There's a couple things about your company, GCAL, the GEM certification and assurance lab. I get GEM, I get cert, I get lab, but you have assurance in there. Right. That, that rings something for me because of my kind of inherent maybe bias or, or slant that the diamond and, and J business is not as regulated. And so with GCAL, why is assurance in there? Assurance is in there because we're the only lab in the world that actually guarantees our product, our work to the consumer. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you very quickly, you can edit this out, but the first attorney I talked to 20 years ago when I set up the, the company, I told him I was gonna guarantee my work. He said, I really wanna advise you against that. And I said, well, I know you do, but I said, I've been in the business so long, it's the only reason why I'm opening a lab at the age of 50. 
you know, uh, again, reinventing myself. I'm not, uh, I'm, uh, we're not editing that out, by the way, because I saw <laughs> that, I see on, I see it, it's the, it's the only ISO set, uh, uh, 170, 25 accredited lab. Is that, and I, and, and I don't mean any effect, is that a legit accreditation? Why aren't more labs doing that? Oh, it's, it's, imagine having a root canal, a colonoscopy, and endoscopy all in the same one hour period of time. It is, I, I would just have to tell you, and my son who was in here and helped set up the uh, Zoom call, uh, he's the, uh, the ISO manage, management representative for our company, and they put him through hell. We actually are physically audited for two to three days every year. And I, I should add, and I didn't send it to you, but we are also we're the only ISO accredited 17025 accredited forensic lab. And so there's two certifications we have through ISO, and it's actually through ANAB, which is ANSI, um, National Accreditation Bureau. Very legitimate. And there's only four labs in the world that have that, four gem and jewelry labs that have it. But every crime lab has to be, um, has to be ISO uh, accredited uh, for forensics, uh, pharmaceutical labs. I, I think there was a law that was passed, federal law that was passed uh, within the last maybe five years or so that said all crime labs. Um, and, and there's a, a very strict process you go through to become a forensic lab. Uh, and that means it's not one person at the top making the final calls on the most critical issues. And that's been one of the, I'm sure it's one of the problems with a lot of convictions that, uh, uh, that have been overturned uh, lately. And they, it all goes back to the crime lab and uh, the, the director of the crime lab was trying to do a favor for somebody or they thought they had a solid case just by turning the dial one more notch it was everything they needed to uh, convict the person. I, I'm not uh, talking like I understand the law, yeah, but, yeah. but just in general. So uh, for us, uh, the fact that we go through this every year, we have to pay people money to come in and look at absolutely everything. They are, have complete control or complete access to everything, including our finances in our uh, computer system. They can pick any employee or as many employees as they want at random and uh, interview them. And the interview questions are not uh, a walk in the park. Yeah. I mean, they really try to drill down and make sure that everything is, um, is according to the process and procedures that are laid out and that we claim that we do. Your, your area what you do with GCAL, and we'll talk about GEMPRINT, and we'll, and you know, law enforcement. Obviously, you know, I have a, a high degree in confidence in what they're doing. I, I don't have a very high degree of confidence in what the the retailers or the wholesalers are doing. And just to give you some comparison, you know, every year, if you're a community bank, you're examined. I mean, examined. It sounds like it's the the proctology, the the. <laughs> I forget what else you said, but it was, I don't want to do it. I, I think I, I think I purposely, purposely so the banks, the banks uh, every year go through it. If you're community, it's ongoing. If you're larger than 10 billion, 
I don't see that happening to the retailers and the wholesalers and the DN. I, I say DNJ because it, it, it's a it's a sector within banks. That's what we refer to. I don't know if it's if it's what you guys hear, but in the diamond and jewel sector, I don't think on 47th Street, those that are required, if you're a wholesaler in diamonds, jewels, and gemstones above, I forget what it is, maybe $50,000 on an annual basis selling or purchasing, you're required to have an AML program. Yes. In my heart of hearts, I really don't think that they have programs that stand up to the rigor of knowing one's uh, customer. Um, And so I've got great comfort in what you're doing. I've got good comfort maybe with the law enforcement doing what's going on within the, within the, the, the wholesale and the, and the retail business, because I can go, I Googled consent order and diamonds consent order and jewels. I found nothing. And you can do that for banks and forget it. Your pages would go on forever. Right. Well, um, first of all, this is the, um, it's still, in a sense, the Wild West uh, of commerce. Um, I mean, to get right to the heart of the matter, um, laundering, laundering money, using gems, especially more so than jewelry, uh, probably the easiest thing in the world. Uh, diamonds defy any kind of detection uh, that, that a human would go through for Uh, checks, uh, security checks through airports, uh, through any kind of checks. I mean, literally, you can easily swallow uh, a million-dollar diamond or a multimillion-dollar diamond, and it can pass through your digestive system um, without any problem uh, later on. And, uh, And you can go through a complete strip search. I mean, cavity search, everything. And uh, short of putting you in a cell with a, you know, with a, a, a small basin or a can to relieve yourself uh, and leave you there for days and, and um, allow you uh, an early out if you drink this, uh, I guess it would be like um, castor oil or some kind of oil that goes through you quickly. Uh, and that's what some of the countries in Africa have done some of the mining companies, when they suspect someone of swallowing a rough diamond that they're, you know, they're digging, it's the bosses are not a mile underground digging through those uh, uh, caverns, those pits. Um, These are workers. And, you know, for someone to, for a 10 carat piece of rough to fall into somebody's hand uh, through one of those pits and for them to swallow it uh, quickly. uh, So if they're suspected of that, uh, that would be their form of uh, vetting them before they release them. Um, and I don't know how it is now, but 20, 30 years ago, if you worked in a diamond uh, mine, you were fenced in. You could not leave. You, you signed a contract for six months and you would stay within this um, fenced in area. And you would eat and sleep and do everything within this area next uh, to the mine. You would not go home. You would not visit people. You would not have visitors, et cetera, et cetera. And I think there was some kind of uh, really draconian uh, kind of um, vetting before you could leave there to make sure that you didn't have any diamonds. So just knowing, and I've probably labored the point about how concealment is very simple. 
uh, I could go through cases. Um, let me ask that, a broader. Let me ask you a broader question. I do have a sure. couple of cases, and I know you 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 know were intimately involved in them. Is the is the marketplace getting better? Has it stayed the same? Are there you know uh, initiatives that are going on? Uh, your company, Gemprint, has been sent around since 1976. I haven't explained it. Zeal and I haven't explained it in in the in the in the preview. Are we getting better? That you're calling it the Wild West is kind of wild unto itself because in other episodes we're referring to cryptocurrency and uh chairman gensler said it on on capitol hill uh earlier this year called cryptocurrency the wild west and i i i'm 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 stunned that i'm you know that that i'm hearing it from you being you know decades involved are you seeing it get better are there are there possibilities solutions out there to make this better Look, there are lots of programs. There's the Kimberly Process Certificate Scheme. Um, and that was developed in the year, it was founded in 2000, um, mostly by American diamond dealers. Uh, and then it grew. Um, and it was really as a result of the uh, horrendous um, war that um, went on in both Liberia and mainly Sierra Leone. Because Sierra Leone has and still has a wealth of um, uh, diamonds in the earth. So it's still a very viable mining uh, country. Liberia was more gold than it was diamonds, but there were a considerable amount of diamonds. They were just smaller. Anyway, I guess the bottom line to that is that um, uh, the Kimberly process scheme started where they were, where you had, where every country that was a diamond producing country had to set up a government controlled registration system. And you would get a Kimberly certificate for a parcel of rough. Now, what they did was they said, you could just put this parcel of rough uh, all together and weigh it. And so that was the first big hole that I saw in the Kimberly process scheme, because you didn't know if you had two diamonds in that parcel that weighed 326 carats, or whether it was uh, 300 diamonds that weighed that. So, uh, and they still haven't altered that. So I see that as a, as a way for people to still dodge taxes. Um, every, every, every country who, produces the Kimberly certificate is also su supposed to have a valuer, an independent valuer to put a legitimate value so that taxes are paid to that country, sort of a beneficiation um, uh, gate, if you will. Um, still very, very easy to get diamonds out of those diamond producing countries. And the other problem is the government corruption. Now, Africa, the continent of Africa, is still and has for 100 years been the leading producer, producing uh, continent of rough diamonds and the most valuable diamonds in the world. Um, right now, Russia, uh, Botswana are probably the two leading countries, two largest countries. But Botswana is a small country inside the continent of Africa and just north of uh, South, uh, South Africa. Do, do I have it right? And I read quite a bit to prepare for this. You, did you did you appraise an eleven hundred carat rough diamond in Botswana? 
the crowning jewel of my career. Ah, there we go. Is that I was hired by Sotheby's, who was going to auction that diamond. This is the second largest rough diamond of gem quality ever unearthed how, in how the big? world. We're, ever. Th this is audio and, and video on uh, YouTube. Those who are uh, listening just audio on uh, iTunes or Spotify or elsewhere. How big is 1100? And then I'll describe. Oh, it's only. Oh, that's it. Okay. It's literally, it's about that big. An apple? Yeah. Oh, bigger than an apple. Okay. Uh, I, maybe an apple and a half. Okay. Well, that <laughs> depends that's on big. the apple, a Macintosh. Right. Well, that's big. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Okay. So, how, what year did you, would you do that? And what were the controls? I mean, if you're ever going to have controls in place to make sure that this is uh, appraised, you know, correctly and, and handled correctly. What year did you appraise this? In 2016, it was discovered in 2015. Now, where it was discovered is the most important thing. It was Botswana. Now, um, back when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, she, um, when she wrote up um, volumes of information about various African countries, she said that was probably the best democracy uh, and the best run country in the entire uh, continent of Africa. She said it was just, uh, and everything that they do, I mean, they have a very, very legitimate government, very legitimate um, uh, democracy, voting system, uh, ed their education is second to none in the continent of Africa. Their uh, hospitalization, again, second to none in the continent of Africa. Everything they do, oh, plus college, free. If you can qualify, um, I, I can't remember what they call their secondary school, maybe secondary, but, but their high school. But if you qualify, you get to go to university free of charge, paid for by the government. This is all funded by diamonds. So Botswana is the second leading country in the world with um, diamond reserves of gem quality. Russia is the first at this moment. The, um, the, I don't know, did I answer the question or did I go? You did. You asked no. me what year, what so it was it? 2016. The, it was uh, the most famous. There was the most famous diamond that had been unearthed because the company who did it, Lucara, uh, had just set up, um, they had just invented these new machines. Usually when the diamonds come out, they have to crush the ore. Well, when you crush the ore, you're crushing diamonds too. But they had set something up where instead of crushing the ore and the pebbles down to a certain size, they crushed it to a larger size. And even at that, a piece of that diamond broke off. It was recovered next to it, but it broke off. So it was actually a 1500 carat gem quality rough. Make a long story short, that diamond is in New York now being cut. Uh, I'm not sure it's being cut and polished uh, in New York, but I, I know that the beginnings of it um, was. We said that in our report that the largest highest quality diamond that could come out of that piece of rough was 300 carats. And then there would be lots of 
20 and 30 and 40 carat diamonds coming out of that. That diamond was the most beautiful, the rough diamond, we could actually see through it. And that is a near impossibility with most diamonds that are most rough diamonds. They, most of them have a skin or a frosting or um, different texture to the surface where it's very, you have, almost have to polish a, to be able to see in. But because a smaller 300 carat piece broke off, it cleaved. It's just like the grain of wood, like the, the cleavage in wood or the grain in wood. Diamond has an invisible cleavage and it can cleave just the same way. If you strike it hard, it, it'll just shear in half. So it, we had a shiny, a very, very shiny window that we could see in. I'm going to ask one question. Don't get me started. Well, no, well, I'm going to ask one question that's going to move us towards the marketplace. And then I'm going to bring up the, the KS trade versus IGI diamonds. If, if you, if, in, in an instance like this, we have a 1500 uh, carat, that's 1100 carat, and then they're going to break it off. Does this go into the marketplace for, uh, for retail and wholesale? Is this used in, um, how do, does this even, does it go and sit in a museum? Or does it go into the marketplace or what then happens here? That's a great question because in my report, my recommendation was that they try to contact all the major museums in the world. That diamond belonged in a museum. You know, the largest diamond was a 3000 carat unearthed in 1909 or 1905. And that was broken up and, and it's in the crown jewels in London. So, so is that what they asked you for? Because you said you were coming into a place. So you get to recommend what they end up doing with the diamond. That's yes. part of your. Yes. So essentially uh, there were, you have to understand there were the owners of the mine. There was the government Botswana that by rights owned a piece of whatever comes out of this in terms of money. Um, and then there was Sotheby's. And so Sotheby's was hired by Lucara to do the marketing of this particular diamond. And an auction of this magnitude had never occurred before to the public. There are many, many auctions to the trade. And um, so anyway, yes, they asked me, oh, they asked me many, many things. They actually asked me after the report was done, uh, it was a 40, 50 page report that, and, and two of my, colleagues here uh, came with me. So Sotheby's funded our trip over there, uh, paid us for our work, but it was for three of us, my lab director and my senior research director. And uh, they just did a phenomenal job. And so the three of us, there were three sets of eyes on this because we didn't know what we were walking into exactly. All we knew that this was, and it was shrouded in secrecy when we were hired, we had to sign, you know, sign our life away in terms of confidentiality. So not only could we not talk about it then, and we've been based from that sense, just so you know, um, but not only could we not talk about it, we couldn't ask any questions in the industry about it from people who may have known because they didn't want anyone to know that we were going there to do this work uh, on behalf of the auction and then essentially on the behalf of the company Lucara. How did you get hired? Did, was there a bidding process? Is this like, you know, there are five, four or five gem experts and you all bid or did they just approach you? No. It's shrouded secrecy and silence. Yeah. 
No, it's the actual work that I've done. Uh, I was actually involved in a case uh, as an expert witness where Sotheby's was on the other side, a piece that had been um, lost, not their fault. They had sent it to a lab and the lab lost it, lost a very, very important part of that. So they, all the people at Sotheby's knew me for years. Plus I've been a research, I've done tremendous research at the auctions going all the way back to 19, really 1978. But uh, in my publication, I've been listing those results since 1982. So they knew me and they knew me well, they'd seen my reports and they thought, um, and my reports are very image, very concentrated on um, photomicrographs and images so that we don't just write the story, we show the story. And, uh, and that's what makes our reports, I think, uh, very helpful in court uh, because we, we make it, so, and I always think in terms of, I'm talking to members of a jury when I'm writing a report, I always write it as if I'm going to have to defend it in court. And I've done that enough. So I know what, you know, um, what a slaughterhouse that can be at sometimes. And, uh, but I also write it so that the least interested person on the jury will find some interest or find something in my report or my demonstrative that they can actually get excited about. Um, including to the point where sometimes when I'm testifying, I have to loudly clear my throat into the microphone because jurors fall asleep. And I would probably be one of them if I had to listen to some of the stuff that goes on in some of these court cases. Um, but anyway, that's... Um, so, so let me I'm, give you a specific... That's case. who I'm talking to. Let me give you the specific case of KS Trade versus IGI. And I, I read about it and, you know, for, for the listener... You know, those who have, uh, you know, engagement rings, I think that this, this rings very, very true for me and, and, and close to home where it was the overgrading of the diamond where, where I think prior to, you know, getting married, I go, I do my two months of savings as it, you know, used to be, uh, you know, many years ago. Now it's a heck of a lot more. And you think that you're buying a one carat, you think that you're buying a two. And in, in this instance, and I'm, I'm reading public uh, information, IGI was um, accused of overgrading and that, yes. and if it, if it happens once and having been a criminal prosecutor, if it happens once, it's not just a one-off. And so how, how, how pervasive, I actually think it's probably incredibly pervasive of what's going on right now with the overgrading. Yes. It's still going on. And uh, keep in mind, when I opened a lab, I didn't open a lab uh, at the age of 50 um, to compete with the behemoths of GIA and IGI and, and some of the other labs that were already in existence. What I was trying to do, and I wasn't trying to replace them, what I was trying to do is shame them into taking responsibility for their work because Look, it's just like, and this is something easy for your listeners to understand. When we had the, the financial collapse in 2008 and 2009, what was the root cause? The root cause was inflated valuations on subprime mortgages. That was the root, I mean, that was like, 
the very, that was the rumblings. That was the earthquake that just destroyed the global economy for a, for a period of time. And I may be embellishing that a little bit, but that's my, that's how I saw it. Um, and it's the same thing. It's if you make my products look better, I will give you more work. So it doesn't even have to be bribery. It doesn't even have to be a cash bribe, although there have been. And, and if you really dug deep, you could find that two of the major labs, global labs in the world, have both been uh, had scandals uh, because of bribery, because uh, important people in those labs in a high position were actually bribed individually with cash um, to, to uh, inflate grades on very important diamonds. You, you, you and I didn't talk about this at all. The, the movie that everyone watched was The Big Short, where they were able to very, very articulately show through the, through the movie how these subprime mortgages worked. And I think they showed a game of Jenga where you, you know, you've got these a few um, uh, well-graded mortgages versus you know sitting on top of very uh poorly graded mortgages um you see a direct analogy there i do i mean look let's face it s p who's bigger than s p um um the other fitch and there was another one nice. who's moody's moody's yes and uh i mean these are the names that just roll off the tongues of just about everybody you don't have to be in the financial world to understand that these are the rating agencies. So I think all rating agencies, I mean, based on my personal decades long experience in my industry, this is, you know, we're not selling something where lives depend on it. We're selling beauty. We're selling emotion. We're selling something that nobody needs, but fortunately for us, everybody wants or almost everybody wants. So there's no excuse for us. Uh, I don't know that there's any excuse for anybody being dishonest, but I think all rating agencies have this moral hazard of, um, I really want that account. I know what I have to do to get that account. Am I willing to do it? Can I convince my, my top echelon to fudge, uh, to elevate uh, these grades here or there? And so that, this is why I started my lab with a guarantee, a consumer guarantee. So I'm not going to argue with the guys on 47th Street. I don't guarantee my grades to them. I guarantee it to not even to their customers who are the retail jewelers, but to the retail jewelers customer who I will never meet unless I've made, our lab has made a mistake and we've overgraded a diamond. So we have quite a reputation uh, in, in, on the street and in the industry is that nobody really wants to use us unless they have to, unless a retailer says, I want you to use them. The, and fortunately, is, there are enough that do. This is firsthand knowledge, having been on 47th Street and having prosecuted that, that case many years ago. One of the guys I was able to interview opened up his overcoat and inside he had a piece of tissue and in the tissue were diamonds. And I mean diamonds. And this wasn't the only piece of tissue that he had on him and certainly wasn't the only amount, only set of diamonds that he had on him either, either. And he wasn't the only person I saw who operated in this way. And so this is one reason why I have the, the founded belief that at least parts of the industry do not have the books and records 
that they're supposed to have. And it's not even in com- close to comparison to what the financial services industry is expected to have. Excuse me. They do. Sometimes they have two or three books, sets of books. Do you think that the, the, the grading companies would let a lab grown diamond go through? We just found one. Tell me last week. Well, we, we found one uh, that came to my attention. Um, that was a very, very significant one. And, um, and it had a GIA laser inscription on the girdle. Now you're familiar for, I guess, for your audience, uh, you can actually using a, um, a laser, you can laser um, a number onto the girdle of a diamond. So it's one way of, of tracing a diamond, but those, they just go in about five microns deep and uh, a human hair, the width of a human hair is average about 50 microns to give you an idea. It doesn't go very deep into the girdle. And is the girdle what it, would sit within the, within the setting? Yes, this is what the prongs go over. Okay. The prongs cup the girdle. So the girdle is the widest edge and everything below the girdle is called the pavilion and everything above the girdle is called the crown. Got it. And then the very top, the largest facet it is called the table of the diamond but the girdle is that edge that's around uh, and that's what where the prongs cup uh, the underneath and the top and keeps that diamond secure or any gemstone secure in a mounting so a gia certified diamond comes to you you look at it and you find out that it wasn't it's not even a diamond it's a it, a diamond uh, a, a true diamond but it's it was lab grown okay so i have to correct you there uh, and this is Federal Trade Commission definition. A lab-grown diamond is a real diamond. It's a real diamond. It's not a mine diamond. It's not what would be called a natural diamond. It is a lab-grown. So it's grown above earth in similar conditions that carbon is grown beneath the earth's surface and that's called a mind or a natural diamond. So both are equivalent in every way, except one grew over billions of years in the center of the earth and came up near the surface through volcanic eruptions. And the other was grown maybe in three or four weeks in a uh, reactor in a laboratory, in a very pristine, very clean laboratory above ground. Would a two carat lab grown and a two carat natural be the same price same cut same four c's absolutely same four c's but absolutely not the same price yes and uh so the diamond was and it happened to be a two carat diamond it was lab grown and uh we don't know we don't believe that it was a gia mistake we believe that someone um put that GIA inscription on the girdle of the diamond and somehow filtered it into uh, a greater parcel of diamonds. And it was purchased by a very, um, a very well-known and, and a very prestigious company overseas and sold a couple of times here in New York before it was then mounted and came through our laboratory to go to a significant retailer. And so it was being marketed as a natural diamond. Oh, absolutely. And it was priced as a natural diamond. Okay. So um, we're talking, yeah, we're talking uh, 
mid five figures for this diamond. It was very high quality. And, and as a lab grown, it was a very high quality too, but would have sold for maybe um, 25% of the price of the, um, of the natural. How pervasive do you think that is? I hope not very, but I fear um, we're not the only lab that has found these stones with what we consider to be fraudulent uh, inscriptions. Um, but if you read the number, which we did, we read the number, um, we looked it up on the GIA uh, report search and uh, a report check, and it gave us the entire information. This diamond was actually cut very, very, very closely to what was described on the GIA report. Let, let's turn to gem print. And you, you told me about this near uh, 18 years ago. Uh, you founded it in 1976. Yes. Um, I, I love the, you know, the name of the podcast is Any Money Laundering Technology and the Law. And here this is identification technology for, for gems. And as I understand it, you're able to shoot light into the center and there's a refraction. And then from the refraction, you are able to create a constellation that you're then able to take a snapshot of. That's better than I think I probably could have well, uh, described it if you, had, if you had given me the question. I, well, I, like I, I want to get to the question because I, because I remember the way you said it, because if, if in my case, they were shaping the diamond to change the shape, but you were like, it doesn't matter because I can see from the inside out. Why, as I understood it then, and in the preview, I asked you then, gem print right now is not universally accepted and used no. and well, why not it's not universally used it is universally understood and accepted as positive identification of a diamond well let me just explain uh, we didn't found the company we bought the company in 2011 but i i've been a user of, of gem print technology since 1978 so it was founded in the Weizmann Institute in Israel. Um, and uh, it, was, um, it was sold to an American uh, company, diamond company, and they uh, produced it and they had gem print machines all over the world. And their problem was it was the, it was the way they were trying to monetize it by charging a per click. And then people learned how to dodge that you know in this industry there's as much mental energy um into figuring out angles as opposed to answers and unfortunately is an indictment on my own industry but i think it's pretty true the thing with with gemprint is that our industry most of the of the industry and they could have easily adopted this and it could have been a piece of equipment in every retail store. Banks should have adopted it. I mean, banks bemoan the fact that, you know, they get ripped off all the time and that when their auditors go in, they don't know if they're looking at a parcel of cubic zirconia or if they're really looking at a parcel of diamonds. And um, cubic zirconia are worth nothing. I mean, they're worth pennies. And uh, so the best way to track polished and finished diamonds has always been gem print. As a matter of fact, Clarence Kelly, who was the first FBI director after Hoover, uh, when he resigned in 19, I think it was 1976. I think Hoover died in 72. 
Clarence Kelly took over and, and he resigned in, uh, from the FBI in 76. He actually joined the board of Gemprint. And his statement was that it is less likely that two diamonds would have the same Gemprint as two humans having the same fingerprint. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. And they've used Gemprint for decades in the um, uh, FBI crime lab in West Virginia. Why are we recently have had conversation? Why is this not being forced to track and embed and you know uh, you know trace all diamonds from 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 uh, unearthing or harvesting? I'm not sure what you call uh, doing it with um, lab grown, but why aren't these printed right then and there before they even get you know five steps away from the the miner or from the the lab? Well, the next thing that happens after after that is government control. And this industry will fight government control uh, to its last dying breath. It would rather go out of existence than, uh, than have government controls, which, which of, of course is unfortunate. It's not a patriotic thing. It's not a, you know, it, it's simply a, a greed thing. They don't want anybody else knowing their business. And if they want to cook the books, they don't want um, some, IRS agent being able to come in and say, oh, but this one, you know, didn't actually go here because we went and had it gym printed. So, um, I mean, look, on a much, much bigger scale, when, when we were part of Collector's Universe and we were married with the gym print, we talked to banks. We talked to many, many banks uh, who were having problems with uh, their customers who were... Uh, you know, they were saying that they had millions and millions of dollars worth of inventory. They were showing the bank people parcels and parcels of diamonds or cubic zirconia. Uh, but, and, and they had accountants that would say, yeah, okay, yeah, that's what we have. Uh, but when they, when they would end up going bankrupt, where they might have had four or five million dollars on their books in inventory, they ended up with... Uh, 40, you know, 30, 40, 50,000 dollars. So they don't want it. The industry doesn't want it. And the industry, and, and I have to say, the other part of the fault is, uh, at least since we've owned it, is production problems of uh, because we want a level of perfection in the equipment. The equipment was not easy to use, but it wasn't overly expensive. It was just that you had to be skilled to use it. And most, most people in our industry don't want to hire any skilled people beyond internet. Uh, and even that, we were, this industry was so slow to adopt the internet and, and web services and all the other things. Um, we, we're like in the dark ages. We were. I mean, we're coming out. That, and that's where I kind of want to uh, stop with the final question is, um, there's one of three courses Number one, a big short type event happens where consumers are affected worldwide. Um, I hope not a 9-11 type event um, where the Klieg lights are, are turned onto the, the diamond and jewel industry and, and change happens, or there is um, change from within. And I see you know, what you're doing with Gemprint, with GCAL, change from within, or it just stays the same as you look at the next, you know, five, 10 years and what's happening with technology, what's happening with 
um, ESG and, and awareness. Are, are you favorable on the direction that the industry is going? Um, what, what, what would your prediction be? Well, I think that there we have lots of agencies, some 100 years old, Jewelers Vigilance Committee, and we have the World Diamond Council, and we have um, manufacturers uh, uh, organizations, and we have a lot, and we have the um, Responsible Jewelry Council, which is as um, uh, much greenwash uh, as, as anything. Uh, we're certified members of it. I mean, we're, you're almost forced to, to join. And that's another root canal that we get. We, we just had a, um, a physical, um, a day and a half uh, physical exam by the RJC. Um, but there are members who are transgressors. I mean, I don't see anything worse than cheating the ultimate consumer with inflated grades I see that as more damaging to the public than money laundering, which is damaging. And I don't in any way say that, it, that it's not or that it should be okay, but money laundering doesn't really hurt the entire public as much as it hurts a segment of the public um, in, as it relates, I think, to our industry. I could be wrong on that, but that's just my take. But anything that goes against the um, the integrity of our product with the consumer, I think that's the time bomb. I think that's the time bomb of this industry. And although we've had, you know, we had an EGL scandal a few years ago. Um, it What's didn't EGL? Go, Just for the uh, that was European Gemological Laboratory, and they're grossly inflating uh, grades, yeah. color, and clarity. Uh, GIA had a scandal in 2005, HRD in 2010. HRD is Hogarod, and there's, they were a government-controlled laboratory in Belgium, and they actually sent their graders to jail who were involved. Uh, nothing like that happened. Um, and then now the uh, KS trade versus IGI, uh, who knows where that's going to go. But what I've been reading, and, and I don't have a legal eye when I'm reading what I get on the Internet, have no other involvement in that uh, case. They they did already admit to money laundering, uh, seven or eight million dollars. Um, I guess they paid a fine, but nobody went to jail. And now is the other issue of the inflated grading. How could the consumer protect him herself then? I, I think really is just demand that. Um, that when they buy a diamond, that they, they make the jeweler, even though there are laws um, that help, like express warranty in a lot of states, UCC laws that protect the consumer, uh, that actually force the seller of a product to be responsible if they sell something where they've represented it, uh, even unknowingly, uh, as something that it's not. But a lawsuit over a diamond engagement ring, you, you're not going to see many of those. What you, what you do is when people find out they've been screwed, you don't hear about it because they just say, oh, okay, the jewelry industry, they're, they're, uh, they're all crooks. And, um, and they don't do anything more in jewelry than they absolutely have to, or they go to costume jewelry for self-adornment if that's what they want to do. Um, but I, I, I just, uh, look, I've been at it uh, all my career. 
And uh, frankly, uh, I feel like a voice in the wilderness sometimes about this inflated grading, but we've had court case after court case. Um, we've had scandal after scandal and, oh, well, that doesn't happen anymore. It's kind of like uh, conflict diamonds. You know, the industry will tell you there's only about 1% leakage in the KP uh, system, uh, but I'm sure that there's much more than that. It's the easiest thing in the world to, uh, to do. I'd, I'd want to make sure uh, if and when, and maybe the next time I buy a diamond that, uh, that you're involved uh, before I, before <laughs> I put money down, certainly. We'll, uh, we'll give you good advice. Well, I appreciate it. I do hope that the industry benefits from more oversight because I do think that there are some things slipping by that I, I hope aren't just, um, uh, I don't want the consumer to get hurt, but I certainly don't want uh, you know, people to be physically harmed by what's going on. And sadly, I think it is happening. So, uh, Don, thank you very much. You're very welcome. I'd just like to say there's a lot of good. We're talking about the bad. There's a lot of good and a lot of good people in the diamond and jewelry business. And I would say the majority are good and honest dealers and, um, and retailers. Um, and, uh, and by no means... Uh, would I discourage people from buying and enjoying diamonds and jewelry? 